Hello and welcome to Bible 101. Please enjoy our Bible 101 series as we explore Genesis through Revelation. Also, listen to our roundtable discussions as myself, Greg Ross, and Eric Feeman talk about the major theological discussions of the Bible. Also, enjoy some of our interviews and apostolic apologetic series. We thank you so much for listening. Please let us know what you think by emailing BibleTTabernacle29 at gmail.com. That's B-I-B-L-E-T-T-A-B-E-R-N-A-C-L-E-29 at gmail.com. And also leave a comment to let us know what you think. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Bible 101. We're going to begin our study of the kings, and I'm going to go king by king, and sometimes we'll be able to cover uh, multiple kings in a a single lesson just because there's not a whole lot written about some of them. But this first king is going to be a bit heavy um, because it's impossible to study the life of Saul without uh, becoming saddened by uh, how much potential there was and how he miserably failed in his mission. Before we actually get into Saul, let me read the requirements for the king. And we're going to see that even the best kings, including David and Solomon uh, in Israel's history, fell short of the mark that God had set. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, I encourage you to read along in your Bibles. I think this study will be very, very beneficial. I don't know how many people are going to listen to this. Um, You know, the sad part about it is the ones that typically get the most listens are uh, ones that people may find a little more entertaining. But um, you know, the, these, I believe, will be very beneficial to us uh, to study because we can learn lessons from their life, learn what to do, what not to do. And, and in this case, we're going to learn what not to do from Saul. But uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 in King James Version obviously says this. Now, this is Moses writing. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee and shalt possess it and shalt dwell therein and shalt say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Let me stop here long enough to just make a couple of points. Um, First of all, we need to understand that God was not surprised when Israel asked for a king. He had already made provision for this. He knew it was going to happen. But the people did not reject Samuel. God made that clear. Uh, The people were not just rejecting Samuel's sons because they were corrupt in their judgment. The people were rejecting God. They wanted a king, and their primary purpose for this, their primary reasoning was, we want a king so we can be like all the other nations, so he can go before us and fight in battles. Uh, They didn't want to be a unique nation. It was always God's intention for Israel to be unique. They were unique in the fact that they worship one God. Their laws were unique. Not all of them, but... Uh, Many of them were very unique to them. Uh, The mark of circumcision, while there were other nations that were circumcised, it it may have been for different reasons and purposes. But God set the mark of of circumcision upon them for a covenant between him and them, a sign of the covenant. And uh, so 
that God wanted the nation of Israel to be unique. They didn't want to be unique. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And uh, we're going to see that uh, slowly there was that degrading of that unique relationship that Israel had with God. And they kept becoming more and more and more like the other nations uh, the longer they were in, in existence. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing was he gave the stipulation. He says, you're going to want a king someday. But when you do, I want you to set somebody up that's your own brother. Don't choose a stranger. Why is this important? Well, one day Herod would be set up as king of the Jews and they hated Herod. Um, be, and, and even though there were like, you know, some political groups like the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees that were happy because he put them in power. But uh, the Jews hated Herod because Herod was an Edomite. Um, you can do the study in your own time, but uh, he was an Edomite and they hated him because he was not a legitimate king. That's probably why Herod felt so threatened when the wise men came and said, uh, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star from the east and have come to worship him. Herod was troubled by this and all Jerusalem with him because uh, I believe Herod was troubled because he realized he was not a legitimate ruler and all Jerusalem was troubled because Herod was troubled. They're scared to death of him because they knew how uh, powerful he was and also how much of a maniac he was. He had some of his own family killed. So um, let's continue reading here. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses to himself. Whoops. We're going to see that a lot of the kings did that, even the best among them. Okay. He shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, you shall uh, henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Whoops. Even David did that. That his heart turned not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Now this, obviously, you're probably thinking Solomon at this point. This is why God put these stipulations. It's not just wasted space. It's in here for a reason. Deuteronomy 17, 18. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes and do them. Now, um, I've tried to do a little bit of study here and see what all this included. Um, this could have included the entire law. This could have included uh, just the book of Deuteronomy. Now, let's look at it as if it just included the book of Deuteronomy. If it included only the book of Deuteronomy, think about it. Um, he would have to, to sit and write his own personal copy. It didn't say that he could have a scribe do it for him. He would sit and write it. And the purpose for this was so he would know the words of the law and he would do them. Now think, while they're multiplying to themselves wives, David, Solomon, and many of the other kings were supposed to be sitting there writing these words. And they're writing them over and over and over again. If they, you know, um, the scribes of old, if they made one mistake, they'd throw the whole thing away and they'd start over again. Well, if the kings did it right, they were having to write this multiple times. And they, they were having to, you know, to do it. And um, I don't want to get off on a, on a rabbit trail here, but in the book of Psalms, uh, chapter number one and verse number one, it says, Blessed is he that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scorn for his, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate. And that word meditate, if you actually look at what that means in the Hebrew, it talks about uh, 
they would speak it out loud, meditate on it. They would think about it, speak it out loud to themselves to try to understand what does this mean. So if the king is doing this right, he's not just uh, writing it, he's reading it, and he's speaking it out loud to himself, should be meditating on it, thinking about what these words mean. Okay, verse 20. Uh, why? What's the reason for him writing his own personal Deuteronomy uh, or his own personal law book? That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So, we're going to read about Saul, and we're going to kind of um, take this verse of or these these portions of scripture here, Deuteronomy seventeen fourteen through twenty, and we're going to stack it up against each each king. Okay, now we're going to see that um, Saul uh, was obviously not the richest king in Israel's history. Saul didn't have the most wives in Israel's history, but Saul failed in other ways, and, and we're going to look at that now. Um, I, I'm here recently, I've, I've been reading through, um, and I like to read in multiple passages at the same time as I read through the Bible. I don't know how many times I've read through the Bible, but I'm reading through it again. And uh, every time I read through it, I, I get something different out of it. And um, I've read this one passage many, many times, but I've never actually caught what exactly it said. Now, if you read the book of 1 Samuel, it gives quite a bit of detail about the kingship of Saul. Um. But then the book of 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings also give a detailed account of the kings. Now, 1 Kings starts with um, the death of David and the transference of the kingdom to Solomon. 1 Chronicles focuses on all the kings, uh, but only specifically in Judah's history. It, it kind of leaves Israel out of the picture and it focuses on Judah. Why is that? Okay. Most scholars believe that Ezra is the man that wrote uh, the book of, of First and Second Chronicles. The purpose for his writing would have been that Israel is coming back um, from the land of captivity. Persia um, ha is in power and has given them the right to return to their land. And at this point, the foundation has been laid. The temple uh, is has been built. Ezra is supposed to come back and reestablish the law of God and teach them the law of God. That's why he's been sent. And so he comes down and um, his purpose in writing first and second Chronicles is to remind the people what they came from, uh, the sacrifice that brought them to that point. He focuses on uh, a lot. He spends a lot of his focus on David's kingship and Solomon's kingship. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting, we'll get more into this as we study the lives of David and Solomon. He leaves out a lot of their failures and a lot of their sins. You're going to read in First uh, and Second Samuel. You're going to read a lot of flaws that David had. You're going to read about in First Kings a lot of flaws that Solomon had. But Ezra leaves a lot of that stuff out when he's writing about them, because his focus is on encouraging the people to come back to the spiritual ideal that had in the, and the sacrifice and the labor. Um, and commitment to God and the law of God that had brought them to that uh, to that place of prominence in the first place. And so he highlights the kingships of David and Solomon. 
Now, I'm just going to say this uh, first off, that uh, that um, David did a lot of good things for Israel, but in, in reality, Saul really didn't do a whole lot good for them other than play defense. Now, I was astonished here recently as I began to study the life of Saul. I found out he actually did not really expand their territory very much. All he did was play defense. The Bible does say that he won victories. But um, I want to show you what his primary duties were. Okay, God called him to the kingship. And he gave him specific reasons for that call. 1 Samuel 9, 15 through 17 says this. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry is come unto me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said unto him, Behold the man whom I spake to thee of, the same shall reign over my people. Okay, there's two things I want you to notice. Number one, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. Number two, that he shall reign over my people. So he had two jobs. Number one, save Israel from the Philistines. Number two, reign over his people. The word reign means to restrain in, retain, close up, shut, withhold, refrain, stay, detain. Can I tell you, sad part of it is these two jobs, it's really the only two jobs he had, he failed at both of these tasks. The Philistines were still a strong force upon Saul's death. In fact, he died in a battle against the Philistines. Secondly, Saul was often driven by a fear of the people. Now we're going to later on uh, break his life down and kind of look at it. But but let me just, um, right now I'm giving you highlights of, from his kingship. 1 Samuel 13, 10 through 12 says this, And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. So Saul's first error was brought on by a fear of the Philistines, who he was supposed to deliver Israel from, and a fear of the people who he was supposed to reign in. But uh, Scripture does say he started out humbly. In 1 Samuel 9 and 1, it says this, Now there was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bicharath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. So, uh, first of all, he came from a powerful and wealthy family. Um, that, that word that, that speaks of uh, a mighty man of power can also mean powerful. It could mean wealthy. So, he came from a powerful and wealthy and prominent family. 1 Samuel 9 and 2, he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man uh, and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person. Okay, that's that's something to uh, to notice there. We'll get back to, into that maybe a little bit later. Then he, from his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. So uh, goodly, by goodly, that means desired. So we find out 
uh, four things here. He was a choice young man, which can mean properly selected. Okay. He was goodly. He was handsome. He was good, pleasant, agreeable. That's what that means. Uh, number four, none was more handsome, goodly, or pleasant than him. And number five, he was higher or taller than any of the people. So physically speaking, he was a perfect specimen of a, for a king. Okay. He was very qualified physically. Uh, also, um, when we're speaking of uh, his uh, family, he was definitely qualified. He came from a wealthy family. He looked like royalty. He was pleasant. Notice how God orchestrated the meeting with Saul. Now, this is pretty powerful, but I'm just going to skim over this a little bit because this is a message in and of itself. I've actually preached about this before. Um, but 1 Samuel 9 and 3 says this. Um, it says, uh, and the asses of Kish, Saul's father were lost. And Kish said to Saul, his son, take now one of the servants with thee and arise, go seek the asses. Saul thought this was a normal errand and, um, he had probably done many like it before, but this was God drawing him. He had a specific meeting next verse. And he passed through Mount Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha but they found them not. Then they passed through the land of Shillem, and there they were not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. So he probably thought, what an inconvenience, but God was drawing him. First Samuel 9, 5 through 8 says, And when they were come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant, which was with him, Come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and take thought for us. And he said unto him, Behold now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he saith, cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither. Peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. Then said Saul to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring to the man of God. What have we? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver. That will I give to the man of God to tell us our way. Now back up to verse 3. Okay, because there's something I want to point out here. The asses of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. Kish said to Saul, his son, take now one of the servants with thee and arise, go seek the asses. Now, notice what he said. He said, take one of the servants. This sounds like it would just be a random selection. Saul, you just go out there and you pick a random servant. But think of the coincidences involved here. Now, I, I use the word coincidences lightly. I'm actually saying these were divine orchestrated events. He picked a servant probably what he thought at random, who just happened to know where the man of God was, who he was, happened to have enough money to pay him. That's not a coincidence. God's drawing him. First Samuel 9, uh, 9 through 13. Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. Then said Saul to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went unto the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, He is. Behold, he is before you. Make haste now, for he came today to the city, for there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as you be come into the city, you shall straightway find him before he go up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he come, because he hath... Uh, uh, because he doth bless the sacrifice, and afterwards they eat that be bidden. Now therefore get you up, for about this time you shall find him. So notice verse 12. For he came today to the city. <laughs> Another coincidence? Verse 13. 
for about this time you shall find him. Another coincidence? Now back up to verse 4. If they hadn't searched all of this time for the donkeys, the timing would not have been perfect. Let's keep reading, verse 14 through 18. And they went up into the city, and there would come into the city, behold, uh, and when they were coming to the city, behold, Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin. See, none of this was coincidence. God knew what time he would be here, okay? He knew where he would come. He knew when he would meet him. And thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said unto him, Behold the man whom I spake to thee of. This same shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. All right, let's read uh, verses 19 through 21. Uh, and Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me upon the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let thee go and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. And as for thou asses that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is the desire of all Israel? Is it not on thee and on thy father's house? And Saul answered and said, and watch his attitude when he first starts, okay? Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? Okay, that's a true statement right there, all right? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin, eh, um, that's not what we read earlier. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like what Moses gave. He said, but Lord, I'm not eloquent. And the irony there in that statement is, if you go back and look at it uh, in the Hebrew, <laughs> he said it very eloquently. Um, and then he says, in my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin, wherefore thou speakest thou so to me. First uh, Samuel 10 one through nine. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee uh, to be captain over his inheritance? God didn't listen to Saul's excuses. And, you know, when uh, when God decides he wants to use somebody, uh, many, many times we're all going to have a list of excuses of why we shouldn't be used. Um, I know that uh, when the Lord called me, I had a whole list of excuses, but God didn't, don't you understand? I've, I've got this problem. I'm not eloquent. I'm not good at speaking in front of people. I'm intimidated. I'm this, I'm that, I'm backward, you know, on and on and on and on and on. God doesn't listen to our excuses. God did not accept the excuses of Moses. He said, I'll be with your mouth. I'll go with you. When he kept making excuses, he said, all right, take Aaron with you. He's a good speaker, but uh, you're going to find out that Moses did most of the speaking. So, uh, you know, that was just an excuse. That's all it was. And maybe he was slow of speech. Some people think maybe he did stutter a little bit. I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, but, uh, you know, I, it, it may not have been legitimate excuses here. You know, we already see that he's physically qualified. He comes from a good family. And while his tribe may have been among the least, uh, we can do a lot of reading about Benjamin. They were mighty warriors. Um, we've already read in the book of Judges that uh, they were uh, uh, ambidextrous, which means like basically they could use both their hands. So uh, it's believed. Now, there's a lot of things to, to say about that. You know, Ehud was a Benjamite. He was man left-handed. Uh, some people think this is a handicap. Um, it's it's true because I'm not going to get into all this because it's a little bit gross, but the left hand was used for sanitary purposes. Go see what that meaneth. Um, but the right hand was known as the right hand of power. Uh, we've talked a lot about this on the podcast. Jesus said that uh, on that day, I'm going to gather the sheep together. They're going to be on my right hand, the goats to my left, on and on and on. Um, Jesus sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Uh, there's a lot of things that could be said about the right hand, but Benjamin, ironically, was called the son of my right hand. That was what his name meant, Benjamin, son of my right hand. Uh, but he produced a lot of left-handed warriors. Now, some people say that they were only left-handed, but actually um, what uh, a lot of scholars seem to believe is that Benjamites were tied up. Their, they would tie up their right hand and force them to use their left hand in battle, and they trained them that way. And it said that they were so well-trained that they could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. So that'd be like saying that um, you could put a hair on a tree and they would swing the, the stone at it and not miss it. I mean, that's accuracy. Some people may say, well, that's hyperbole. No, these men were very accurate and they were great warriors. We, we've already seen that uh, the other tribes gathered together and fought against Benjamin and Benjamin won two battles before the Lord intervened and Israel finally won. So we're talking about uh, you know, maybe they were the least because uh, they had already suffered great loss due to those battles there. But, um, you know, God called him. And man, there's so much that could be said here. And so I'm already seeing we're going to have to do multiple parts. But um, something else I want to I want to speak about is the fact that remember, Benjamin had been judged by God for protecting the men of Gibeah, I believe it was, for their perversion. And Benjamin uh, lost many warriors, so their record was blighted. Yet God called the first king from uh, the least tribe. So let me just stop here long enough to say it does not matter what your family background is. It does not matter if you came from a group of alcoholics, drug addicts, prostitutes, uh, and it doesn't matter if you're a first-generation Pentecostal. If God places a call upon your life, guess what? You're qualified. Um, I'm already reminded of the scripture, and, and, and uh, um, uh, I, I want to go ahead and, and, and uh, read this verse of scripture to you. It says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 26, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound, or that means to put to shame the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound, again, put to shame, the things which are mighty and base things of the world. That word base means insignificant. You say, I'm so insignificant. No, you're not. If you're called of God, he'll, he'll make sure you're significant. He'll, he'll, he'll make you significant. Base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught, that means to bring to nothing, things that are, that no, here's the reason why, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Saul was not supposed to glory. Um, and he starts out so humbly. He recognizes that he comes from the least of the tribes. He recognizes that he's not a man of great ability. Yet, you know, he stands tall in stature. He comes from a prominent family within the tribe that he comes from. Uh, but God still chooses him and selects him. But um, God had plans for Saul. That's something we need to understand here today as we study his life. God had plans for Saul. God really wanted to use this man. That's why uh, it's hard for me to talk about Saul because God really wanted to use him. Let's keep reading here. First uh, Samuel 10, let's start with verse 2. When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find uh, two men by Rachel's sepulcher uh, in the border of Benjamin at Zelza, and they will say, um, 
pardon me here for a second. Uh, and they will say unto thee, the assets which thou wentest uh, to seek are found, and lo, thy father hath left the care of the asses uh, and sorroweth for you, saying, uh, what shall I do for my son? Then shalt thou go to uh, uh, go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor, and there shall meet thee three men going up to God to Bethel, one carrying three kids, and another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a bottle of wine. And they will salute thee and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt uh, uh, receive of their hands. Y'all have to pardon me. My eyes aren't what they used to be, and sometimes I struggle a bit reading. Uh, after that, thou shalt come to the hill of God, which is uh, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and, an, and, an, and a pipe and a harp before them. And they shall prophesy and the spirit of the Lord shall come upon thee and thou shalt prophesy with them and shalt be turned into another man. Now notice that shall be turned into another man. So again, uh, God doesn't call, uh, call the qualified, uh, you know, he doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called, as the old saying goes. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, thou shalt prophesy with him, they shall, uh, you shall be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs are coming to thee, uh, that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. So all of this was a purpose to show Saul, you don't need to be afraid, God's with you. Okay, thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, uh, and behold, I will come down unto thee and to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Every day shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. You're going to read the same thing about David. God gave him another heart. When God anointed a man, um, now there's a whole lot of things to be said here. Okay. Um, you notice that Samuel poured oil over his head. Back up to 1 Samuel 10 and 1. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head. Now, oil was a type of the Spirit of God. And that tells us something. When he was anointed by the Spirit of God, uh, chosen carefully by God, anointed by the Spirit of God, God gave him another heart. This should bring to mind uh, the scripture that says, uh, I will put my Spirit upon you. Uh, I will give you a new heart. I'll take out the stony heart, put in you a heart of flesh. Um, and so, uh, in fact, let's, you know what? Let's take some time to read that um, right now. Ezekiel chapter number 11. Um, and let's go uh, to verse number 17. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and send you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel and they shall come uh, thither. And they shall take away all the detestable things thereof and all the abominations thereof from thence. And I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you. Watch. Here's what happens when he puts a new spirit within them. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Um, so what God is saying is when I put my spirit within you, I'm going to be putting in you a new heart. I'm going to take out that stony heart. Holy, righteous God, glorious, omnipotent, perfect one, you reign.
We hope you have enjoyed this Bible 101 episode. Please leave a comment to let us know what you think. Also email BibleTTabernacle29 at gmail.com. That is B-I-B-L-E-T-T-A-B-E-R-N-A-C-L-E-29 at gmail.com to leave us comments, questions, or maybe ideas for future episodes. Thank you so much for listening.